is Luke Bretherton, and this is the Listen, Organize, Act podcast, which focuses on the history and contemporary practice of organizing in democratic politics. This episode discusses the work of the British philosopher Bernard Crick with a particular focus on his seminal essay, In Defense of Politics. It's, a, it's an essay which organizers and leaders have turned to again and again to inspire shared action and explain the meaning purpose and character of democratic politics. I'll discuss his political philosophy and and the essay in particular with my friend and colleague Morris Glassman, who's a political theorist, Labour peer and founding figure of Blue Labour. Morris knew Crick, uh, but prior to his deep involvement in Labour Party politics, Morris was for many years involved in community organising as part of London Citizens. And that's we worked together in that capacity on a number of campaigns. And I should also say I've, I've been in regular conversation with Morris about politics and political theory and, and related matters for nearly 20 years now. Before we begin, and just a couple of points of housekeeping, Morris being Morris, he smoked throughout, turns out rolling and lighting up is a noisy business that dominates a microphone's attention. And just to compound matters, Morris had just come back from the dentist and had a tooth removed. But so anyway, let's dive into the Listen, Organise Act podcast with an episode on Bernard Crick. Morris, great to have you on the show. Welcome to the Listen, Organise Act podcast. Um, Just to get us going, can you say how you got involved in organizing oh what well, the the initial birth story is that i was teaching at a place that was originally called london guildhall university right. and then it transformed itself into something else like another kind of city of london poly right. then it was london guildhall university right. then it was london metropolitan university I would say about 80% of my students were from families originally from Bangladesh, Pakistan, um, Nigeria, Sudan. Um, and they were overwhelmingly uh, religious. I was a lecturer in political theory. And I started off teaching very conventional political theory courses, theories of justice, Plato, Aristotle, history of political thought meant absolutely nothing to him. So um, it was overwhelmingly Muslim and African Christian. But neither the Muslims nor the Christians actually believed in a secular state. Um, This theory of justice that meant absolutely nothing. So I originally got into organising because I wanted to find a way of teaching that would bring faith, their faith, into some recognition that there is also something called politics. <laughs> I mean, so jihad versus crusades would be a rough summary of my first, second, and third year classes. So I had to find a, 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 a way of teaching, actually, that, that would say that within your religion there are conceptions of politics. That was one side of the story, and I heard that there was a local organization called the East London Community Organization that worked with faith communities. Right. So right. that was my initial contact with, um, which was then just them. It was yeah. just Telco. That yeah. was the whole community organizing yeah. story in London. Then there was another thing which was um, with a guy who was the chaplain of my university, William Taylor. Um, we took a petition against the City of London because they were denying our freeborn whites as Englishmen, they were passing legislation that changed the electoral law in the City of London. 
so that the electoral vote was based on the number of um, employees you had, but the employees had no vote. So I liken that to the slavery franchise in the United States of the Revolution said they had no basis in English law to do such a franchise. Um, and when we did that, um, Neil Jameson, who was the head of Telco, suddenly appeared in the audience and said, well, wouldn't you like to do something where you actually won? Right. You know, we had some chance of winning. We began a relationship, and then through that, I got involved. I, when I started to read Alinsky, the action is in the reaction, in particular interested me politically, work inside the experience of a people, outside the experience of enemies, things that I found I was doing. And it was the first time I found any sort of a formal expression of that sort of thing. So how I got into it was a combination of doing politics to resist the domination of the City of London and trying to find a way to teach my students how to do politics. And it kind of came together. But the truth of the story is I went into it thinking that I would bring my students in. But in fact, I went off on a whole adventure. And it was only later in the day that the students joined in. So I'm kind of assuming that, that most listeners probably haven't heard of Bernard Crick. So just... For those who aren't familiar with him, can you briefly describe who Bernard Crick was and, and something something of his biography? Well, Bernard Crick was an academic. I'm, I, I think he was in Scotland or something from Scotland. Um, Bernard Crick is he, he was a political theorist. Um, he really his specialism academically was in sort of Hannah Arendt. What his PhD was on, he was very interested in. In that stuff, but he really began Machiavelli. He was very unusual English academic. Is that he was interested in politics um, as a form of reconciliation, reconciliation of estranged interests. Um, and he went. He got a job at LSE as a lecturer, where you know the the big political theorists really didn't have any time for him. He's seen as a bit prosaic, as a bit. Not, not really, you know, as English people say, and they're dismissive, we're not really top draw or not really, you know. Yeah. So, um, and he walked into the beginning of the heyday of sort of liberal theory, which was very abstract and universal. Well, he was actually interested in politics, how politics works, uh, what it is. He, he was uh, very allied, really, with a certain um, wing of the Labour Party, very close to my own Blue Labour although Blue Labour didn't exist, but that was, he was, he marvelled, he calls it a wonder how working class people managed to create a political party that kept the middle class under control, but that's obviously not the case anymore. So um, he, he, he actually at one point in the book calls it a miracle that such a thing could be that what he called a certain common sense prevailed over ideological considerations that was prepared to negotiate and build a wide coalition of, of which they were part. So then in later life, he became the kind of special advisor to David Blunkett of the Department oh, okay. of Education. So Bernard Crick did draft the first courses in citizenship that New Labour introduced after 1997. But I don't know how well, I mean, I, yeah. I, mean, I think he was also witnessing the disintegration of labour as a working class force. So I've spoken to David Blunkett about it, and let's say there were tensions. Um, <laughs> and I think at some point he was no longer um, the chief advisor on the development of the curriculum, but part of a committee right, right. that was 
um, engaged in that. Right. So how, how did you get to meet him and, and, and what was he like? I got to meet him um, at St. Ethelburgers. So gave a lecture at St. Ethelburgers. I just, Morris is looking at me slightly quizzically. Morris and I actually met through St. Ethelburgers. Can you just, just say a little bit, a bit about what, what St. Ethelburgers was and, and uh, kind of what, what it did? It was a church that was bombed by the IRA that was rebuilt by the Bishop of London, Richard Charters, as a centre for reconciliation. So... I was interested in that. And this William Taylor, who you mentioned earlier, then became a, a significant figure. And uh, we invited Bernard Crick right. to give a lecture on faith and citizenship. And then um, we met in Parliament right. once we had tea together. Ah, okay. So what was he What was he like as a, as a person? Gruff, um, impatient, um, very, 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 very good with students and children, very short-tempered with adults, I would say would be a roughly a classic, um, be very difficult for American uh, listeners to understand, but he reminded me completely of a very old school, grammar school headmaster, patient and kind, but very firm with students, but with parents, he had no idea. You know, like you know, this is, this is what are you talking about? Loving students, yeah. Just, just building on that. It's interesting doing a deep dive into Greg's work uh, for in preparation for this and and reading through it, and just saw an extraordinary resonance between your work and, and his. And I'm just wondering, kind of, when when did you first engage with his work, or, or, or kind of what to what degree was an influence on on your own thinking? I only read in defence of politics. Um, after I'd become a peer. Ah, so what influence did he have on your thinking, if any? Until I read the book at the age of about 53, absolutely not. I think I was part of the more sneery, you know, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, and then um, I was sent the book to write a forward, and I read it, and it was a completely shocking experience. It was like this tradition is completely alive. And obviously gave me huge confidence because this goes back. I mean, this book was written in the 60s, but he... Yeah, but he was drawing on stuff from the 40s as well. I mean, he, yeah, so that was a completely shocking experience. And I was so um, amazed by the book and, and and really engaged with the book that um, I missed the writing the forward because I missed the deadline. You know, I, 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 I couldn't get my thoughts down. It wasn't like, oh, I've read this before. Yeah, I could just yeah, do a brief yeah. summary. Um, I, I must have spent two or three months just reading it and really reading it every day. Um, as you can imagine, it was it was a marvel and an enormous comfort. So I do think that this book, which I really think is an essay, yeah. I just think it's an essay, is the finest essay of an English academic of the last century in politics. I don't think there's any rival to it. I think it's broad, it's capacious, it's generous, it's beautiful, it's got a fantastic tone, it's got the headmaster tone, you know, listen at the back, tone. you know, stop yeah. it. Yeah. And um, yeah. stop being silly, stop mucking about, let's get to the point, that's yeah. the point. Um, it's a really, really fantastic uh, book. And uh, I reached out to him just before he died and, right. and said, told him so. So right. that's a relief. Yeah, right. So can you just say, you know, you mentioned Aaron already, but but can you just say what were the kind of key influences on him as a as a thinker? Yeah, Aaron Bowie turned out to be not a really significant figure in the book. The the huge figure is the great Aristotle, the the beginning in political community, not outside political community. 
not beginning with the academic, the rational, but beginning with the real and the ethical, building on the ethical traditions of the place that you're in. So all of that was straightforwardly Aristotelian. Then Machiavelli, and particularly drawing on the discourses. I just want to pause that there, just because people might have read Machiavelli, the Prince, in in courses or whatever, but very few people have read the discourses. Can you just give us a little sense of Machiavelli and the discourses and the, and the significance of that and what 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 he's about there? So Machiavelli in the in the discourses is actually talking about what constitutes a good politics in a city. Absolutely relevant to organising. And there is stuff in there about the role of leadership, but there's much more stuff about the role of tribunes, about holding leaders accountable. So there's this thing in in, uh, Rome where only the the properly, only the people, uh, only the people who didn't have who didn't have a property qualification to vote. Yeah, yeah, they only they were allowed to attend, and they essentially had the right to sack or imprison their rulers. Right. At the Tribune, right? So the Tribune was, you could say, a a very significant accountability assembly. Now, right. I think the accountability assembly goes back, and you could trace it even more in the Bible. Yeah. Um, there's a large number of accounts of where the people... Nehemiah is a great example. Um, but throughout that, throughout the government, uh, meeting at the gates of the city and right. deciding the matters... Right. You could even say that the deposition of Saul, where the elders gather, and the appointment of David was a classic accountability assembly. Saul was basically sacked. Right. Right. He was yeah. alive. He wasn't killed. Yeah, yeah. But he was sacked as by the people. Right. In a public assembly. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's just true to the text. That's yeah, not yeah. some, um, some fantasy going on there. Um, and I've been through it in the last few years, the number of times that there's a calling of the elders, there's a calling of the... Obviously, they're not called citizens. Yeah. Um, but it's the people of the city in public. So the accountability assembly goes way back. Um, and Machiavelli really draws upon this in the governance of a city. So essentially, he says that the people will, will live with an acceptance of the rule of what he calls the grandees, the rulers, as long as they don't oppress them and exploit them and let them live their lives. But as soon as they start interfering with their lives, the tribune is called. And uh, and many people, I mean, they have the right to execute them, imprison them, sack them, or renew their contract. Right. All four. Very rare that they were killed. Right. Very, very rare. But often they were sacked. And then they had seven years to sit out before they could return. It was a serious penalty. So um, that's the real stuff that Crick is going on about. With and Machiavelli talks a lot about the balance of interests, right. which is which is definitely different to the separation of powers. That yeah, yeah. that's a very big right. aspect of the English Constitution. What's called the ancient Constitution, and very significantly different to the United States, where. Yeah. Where essentially you just have the separation of powers uh, and what's the politics to do there? Yeah, you end up with um, this kind of separation of powers between the Supreme Court as the legislature, the executive branch, the presidency, and then Congress. And whereas in the what's saying the kind of British system, they're all kind of weirdly immersed in the same system and part of the same thing rather than kind of separated out. So they have separate functions, but 
part of a unified sense of government, whereas in the States they're kind of operating and in, in somewhat in conflict with each other. The two aspects, there's sovereignty on the one hand, that there has to be um, a capacity to act. Yeah. Um, and the other one is about the representation of the different interests. Within a shared body of deliberation. So Jeremiah, seek the good of the city, because in his piece you'll find peace, um, is definitely animating Machiavelli. Right. So it's a very complex, it, I mean, academics bore on for, for years, but essentially the reality is that there's a secular and there's a Christian component to this. And in the Italian cities with the cathedral and the town hall, yeah. you've got a very visible manifestation, but the thing is the city was whole. And that's, that's actually quite a nice segue into, uh, into my next question, which is that the, for Crick, citizenship is neither about identity nor rights, Rather, it's about kind of participation and contribution to the building up of the body politic, something anyone can do, whether whatever their kind of class, gender, ethnicity or, or national origin. And Crick, at least on my reading in, in his work, he's, he contrasts what I would see as a kind of civic Republican view of politics with both liberalism and a kind of social contract understanding of citizenship, citizenship and nationalism and a view of citizenship as based on a kind of shared ethnicity or, or history. Can you can you just kind of say something about how these distinctions work and what's, what's in play in there? And what's at stake for him in the contrast between his broadly civic republican view, you might want to test that a bit, but broadly civic republican view, and both a nationalist and a liberal understanding of citizenship? Yeah, the reason I'm not fully buying into the civic republican right. thing is is that he was at ease with monarchy he was at ease with many different forms um of governance yeah. um but but what he was very concerned with was this concept of sovereignty that there was self-government by a community of people that was more than an aggregate of individuals and society was constitutively pluralist yeah. so key to bird and quick um is that he was a paradoxical, you know, what did he call politics? A dirty beauty, yeah. right? Um, he had many different paradoxical expressions, a sublime compromise, right. right? So he put together concepts that don't go together. That's politics, um, a paradoxical mm -hmm. politics. So what he said was, first of all, it was constitutively pluralist and pluralist in certain ways. So first of all, it was always class pluralist, that yeah. they were rich and poor and they had different interests. So his definition of politics is how do you live together with people who are genuinely different to you, right? Now, liberalism has a real problem with dealing with people who are genuinely different. In fact, they have a problem dealing with people altogether, but we can put that aside. <laughs> so there's a pluralist view, and so there's class pluralism, there's religious pluralism, yeah. which, of course, we're very alert to in Britain because... We were once Catholic and then we became Protestant and not everybody, you know, there were, and then we had an explosion of stuff um, in the 17th century um, of all different forms of Christian sects. So, yeah. and then there were the Jews and then, you know, so Britain's always been a pluralist, much more so than other countries, um, pluralist religious space. He's sensitive to geography, right. you know, that the people are from places and those places have different stories to tell. So how do you live together with other people in civic peace under a common law? Yeah. That's politics. Yeah. So how do you bring all these different 
and he said the practice of politics is to reconcile the interests wherever that may lead. So he was not a fan of written constitutions. You know, it was the evolution of a settlement. I mean, immigration transformed to that settlement. You've got to bring people into a conversation where no one interest dominates. Right. right? So that's, that's roughly his summary. Um, of all that. So there's the rejection of the liberalism, which is abstract, universal, and doesn't do politics. Yeah. It tries to deal with things legally, yeah. you know, so within a framework of rights. He, he's very contemptuous of that. And then the nationalist thing is that not everybody is from a shared ethnos. Right. So if you've got an identification of the state with one particular community, you have a big problem of politics yeah. because... Um, you you exclude people, but if you include all the people in this conversation, that's why the participation is so important. Um, that's the beauty of it all. Right. It's not the end. You know, you could say like Bernstein in social democratic theory, the movement is everything. The ends are nothing. Right. You know, that would be very quick. Yeah. That the important thing is to keep the bloody show on the road right. to keep, and it doesn't matter. The mistakes, the policy mistakes, that as long as the politics goes on and those can be corrected and modified. Uh, just picking up on that, I mean, I, I think I found very powerful in his work, and he, and he articulates it very clearly, this sense, and, and this, how he puts it, it, it kind of goes very much against how the story is often told today. And for him, the political communities is neither founded on some shared ideology nor a shared ethnos or kind of shared ancestry or shared history, um, or is it can't be founded on some kind of shared administrative process or kind of rational idea. It's literally founded, and it's only as good as the quality and character of the relationships, that, the political relationships that, that constitute Founded it. by institution. That's the crucial yeah, factor in, in his thing, is that the institutional role, for example, in federal politics, of parliament and the political parties. Right. A lot of the stuff gets sorted out within mass membership political parties. Right. Right. Um, and he obviously had a particular interest in my party, the Labour Party, yeah. as at its best, and in all labour has to deal with immigrants and locals and representation of labour interest. It's very rooted in local communities. North South is a very big divide. So how do you how do you create a common good out of this? First of all, within the parties, and then he's very big on accepting defeat. Right. You know, of the legitimacy of defeat. It's a, yes, it's another great democratic paradox is the, the loyal opposition. Completely. But it's the acceptance that you lost this. And we'll have, a, we'll have another go next time. Right. 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 There's always a next time. So this is not an eternal binding, yeah. an election victory. You can do things. Yeah. And then you go to the people and you could get removed. Right. That's, but that's not a constitutional or legal issue. That's a political issue. So he's very good on how Labour always accepted its defeats. And when it won, very big in 1945, it could nationalise coal, steel, shipworks, Bank of England, NH, uh, National Health Service, created enormous swathes of the country that you couldn't buy or sell in national trusts and green belts. And the Conservatives accepted, <laughs> you know, that, that having been a loyal opposition for so long, it was, well, it's our turn now. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then Labour obviously went to the country and lost. So just uh, just want to pick up on that. Like, what To what extent would you say he was a distinctively British thinker? Um, to a great extent, there was an element where he marvelled at the politics of his country. But I think, I think in his words, as I say, Aristotle, Machiavelli, who are the who are the real thinkers, Hannah Arendt, and none of these are British. Um, he's looking at politics as an activity, and he's saying, "Well, there's something going on in, particularly in England." Um, he's quite funny about Scottish people. We'll put that aside. Um, where this works out. Right. And he thinks that in more bounded written constitutions, there's blocks on this, but this goes on and it goes on all the time everywhere. That's politics, is that different interests exist, different interests have to find a way of living together in peace. And he says it's very clear what happens when they don't. Yeah. So you're, I'm kind of, you, you've mentioned uh, Labour and, and the role, his role in Labour a fair bit. We've, we've touched on that. That he, he sometimes identifies himself as a socialist, and I think he means you know quite something quite distinct by that. But I was wondering, what to what extent would you see him as a, a distinctively Labour thinker? Okay, so what he wasn't into was a centralised state bossing people about and controlling your life. That wasn't politics. That he calls those guys the bad guys. Yeah. Right, there's bad guys. And bad guys are guys who want to eliminate politics in the name of justice, in the name of fairness, or in the name of the ethnos. But they want to eliminate politics and impose their view through the state. So a huge part of politics is resistance to that. Yeah. Um, so in, in, in the sense that in other European countries, socialists became entirely statist and always um, eliminated the labour interest in the name of the national interest. He hates the concept of the public interest. This okay. idea really drives him nuts oh, yeah. because it's a technocratic concept where you eliminate the necessity of politics. You say, well, what's in the public interest? And then we do what's in the public right. interest. And we'd have to listen to anyone. No, that's a legal operative concept that eliminates the negotiations required for politics. So, yes, yeah, so I would say that he was he was very hostile um, certainly to the nationalism of the single ethnos, that, that's certainly the case. Uh, he was also hostile to a certain kind of conservatism, yeah. with, which I think he was a bit unfair to, but he did think that conservatism fetishised tradition. Right. Rather than seeing tradition as a means through which change occurred, he viewed it as a... But that's how Labour he was. He, right. he, in other parts of the book, he's very, very fair, fair to it. So I'm just adding a third yeah. component. Right. So <clears throat> I just want, I kind of want to expand a bit. We've, we've touched on how he distinguishes his, what well, I, I would say is kind of more broadly Republican view of political order from both a, a nationalist and a, and a liberal one. Um, he's also quite critical of places of, of democracy in in the book, in defense of politics and, and elsewhere in his writing. And, and I think he tends to conflate democracy in places with forms of majoritarianism and, or, or sees that as a, as a kind of issue in, in democracy. Uh, can you can you kind of lay out something of his concerns about democracy as, as a form of rule? This is an argument with Rousseau. This is an argument with the general will, with the single sovereign will. He was into the balance of power. So one component of that was certainly the democratic aspect in the national polity. I think he's very sympathetic to democracy as a decision-making process locally. 
Um, but it's to say that that vote, that expression of the voting will, has to enter into a relationship with its opposition. Yeah. Right? And then there's other considerations. There's um, the consideration of communities affected by that legislation that should be heard. That they should all be part of this yeah. negotiated story. And to the greatest degree, the reconciliation should occur. So the way of putting it, he was against um, a form of general sovereignty, general will sovereignty of a singular world that dominates all others. Uh, but he was very much in favour of what you might call parliamentary sovereignty, the politics is a sphere of action where you can do things, uh, where there are winners and losers. Um, but in that process, to build that position, you need to make compromises and to build a generally broad-based coalition. And then when in power, you must engage with your opponents. So it, it's it's the difference between the French Revolution and the English Revolution. So we won't get into that. Um, but I do, I do want to say he's, I mean, he is very critical of populism in quite a few places. It's important to say, Luke, that he doesn't mean by populism what we mean, which is that anybody who challenges the free market right, is a populist. He was working in a different era. So his conception of, of populism was the expression of grievance without politics and, and to grab power of the state without any mediation. So I, th I think, our, I mean, almost that word now is defunct because all forms of democratic politics now is by definition popular. So, so yeah, he's, I, I, he's, he's draws on, on Arrington places to make this distinction between the, the people and the mob. And that seems to be quite a, a key distinction for him. And again, I think drawing in the, in the background here, someone like uh, Alexis de Tocqueville and this notion of democratic despotism, which is another form really of, of majoritarianism, where instead of, uh, kind of this plurality and the importance of politics as a process of conciliating interests, you've really got the imposition of, of the general will. Okay, the distinction between the mob and the crowd is vital to him. Um, so deep down, Bernard Quick believed in organising. He believed in organising local interests, um, particularly with an emphasis on organising those who are excluded, bringing them into a public conversation with others about the distribution of power, and being able to act effectively in the public sphere to transform and change the prevailing balance of power. That's is the endless reconstitution of the city, yeah. the polis. Yeah. Um, and that always has to be a reconstitution of solidarity between people. So in that sense, I think it's a very important figure for organising. So just, I kind of want to, I want to bring... A, a point we've been touched on before uh, uh, about labour with um, connecting really to to how he understands this term socialism. And when, I mean, I, I don't think it's a point that's well understood when I tend to, tend to use the term socialism, my students, particularly in the, in the States, they tend to think either communism of, of the Soviet era um, or kind of statist, heavily statist socialism or at best kind of social democracy of, of Sweden. But he's drawing on quite a different tradition in many ways. And, and I, it's one that's really very crucial to your own work um, with Blue Labour. And that we might say is a kind of non-statist democratic left 
version of socialism that emphasizes the place of cooperatives and unions and things that in forms of self-organized life independent of the state. And I recognize fully a non-statist is a bit problematic, but could you just expand on that and that, that understanding of socialism? The tradition that I draw on um, did not dismiss the state. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a way that sometimes Americans find straight. So the state was a very important actor um, in all this. Um, but the problem with the state is that by delivering services universally, by acting in how it's supposed to act as a, as a fair and just distributor of goods and rights, it demobilizes people from politics. That his point. So there's got to be a politics underneath all that. Um, so the state obviously has a wish to dominate, yeah. usually in the name of justice, sometimes in the name of other things. National security would be another one. Um, or a certain concept of the nation against other aspects of the country. All of those are clear and present dangers because the state has the monopoly on violence. Yeah. So Labour, for example, um, I mean, the, the classic example of the formation of the Labour Party, TAF failed judgment, uh, unions were made illegal. Right. Labour organised in order to be able to have freedom of association within the realm, well, within the, within the kingdom. Um, organised to that effect, and won to that effect, and got recognised, their freedom of association was recognised. But then it was as a free society. It wasn't a state, that the unions were wary of the state interfering in its internal practices. So they, for example, the Labour Party and the church were always in alliance, which is very difficult, I think, for people elsewhere to understand, um, in alliance against the state interfering in their own self-organisation. And it's the notion of free corporations. It's the Anti-Corporations Act. These are all the the clues in the name. that the Anti-Corporations Act was an attempt to outlaw labour organisations. So this freedom of association uh, was extremely important and it was as much to resist the domination of the state as it was to resist the domination of the market. So the idea was to have an an alliance between a political party and a movement where those tensions would remain. But over time the statist elements did predominate. I mean, I I think this is really important because he's anti-communist and anti-fascist and seems to be central to his view is that politics needs freedom of association and and that's the basis of a a free and more equal society. And, And this obviously takes, kind of entails the ability to come together and generate shared forms of life without domination by the state or the market. And I I just don't think that's a well understood focus of democratic left tradition. Um, It's it's certainly there in Alinsky, it's there in Bayard Rustin and and Ella Baker, and basically pretty much all the figures I've looked at throughout this series. Um, And that's obviously the fight. I mean, Alinsky writes on this, but that's the fight that the great American labor organizer, John L. Lewis, fought against both the communists and the fascists. He saw his work as anti-communists and anti-fascists as well, even as he's fighting the kind of uh, fighting corporate America for, for um, labor rights and the, the kind of role of the state in, in inhibiting that. Whenever 
the Labour movement was successful, it was like that. But as soon as it surrendered to the graduates, um, then it surrenders to the Liberals, then it becomes a matter of re-educating their members rather than representing their members. Um, so there's a whole story to be told there, but life is in relationship. I mean, Crick is very, you build your relationships with those around you with mutual interests. And that's the lifeblood of a country. So you've got there the sense of politics is about the, the resistance to the domination of the state, even even when it's your friend, you know, when your Labour parties and government unions have gone not be completely in, in hoc to or, or subservient to, to the state. Um, and also the sense of politics as a mode of resistance to the domination of, of the market. Can you just ex- expand on that and say a bit more about this relationship between how we'd understand the relationship between politics and capitalism. I mean, that's pretty straightforward, is that democratic politics is the means through which poor people resist the domination of rich people. That's why it's what he calls agonistic. So it's not a, this is messy, I, I, you know, a miracle of messiness, he calls a constructive, you know, it's, it's difficult, it's, it's relentless and it's hard. Um, that's that's just the nature of of politics. But the key thing is that there is a political power that means that the human being is not turned merely into a commodity or a consumer, but they have a moral status as an equal partner in the governance of society. So the resistance to the domination of capital is absolutely fundamental to the what is politics. Politics is the means through which people live together under means of uh, common law in civic peace, right? And so the issue of the domination of the rich is the far is even more pressing to him than the domination of the state. So yeah, I've just I've just done an episode on um, Sheldon Wolin, a pre previous episode, and he's very clear on citizenship is about neither being clients of the state nor kind of simple passive consumers of what kind of capitalist corporations produce. And it seems to be a very strong resonance here between Crick and Wolin on, on this point. Can you say a little bit about that? I think you're saying what organising should be about right. completely. Yeah. That's what it's about. It's, it's about the kingdom in that way. So you, uh, we, I think we mentioned briefly the um, work he does on political education and, and how to teach citizenship in in school. And in, in his, in some of his work, where he discusses his account of how to teach political literacy, he emphasizes the need to use everyday speech and situate politics in the ordinary experiences of people. And I think this this comes through in his his own writing, which rather than uses. I mean, he kind of tends to avoid highly theoretical and, and jargonistic terms and tries to reach for quite down to earth, um, to, down to earth in, in its style. And you can obviously hear the echoes in his work of one of his own heroes, George Orwell, and, and Orwell's kind of classic essay, uh, Politics and the English Language, which I highly recommend to, to anyone if you haven't read it. Um, you, you have a similar approach in, in the speeches you write and, and in how you talk about politics and in, in your own writing. Can you just kind of reflect on the importance of how we talk about politics and why style and genre matter to politics itself? 
Yeah, so politics is as fundamental to life as sex. He makes this point that politics and sex are the only two things that are both necessary and have to be freely consented to, right? (laughs) So he does a very long uh, engagement with the parallels between politics, and there could be good sex and bad sex, uh, good politics and bad politics. He goes on about this for pages. It's my favourite bit of the... It's my favourite bit of the book is that it is mutually necessary. Um, So it is a matter of necessity, but it is also a matter of freedom. But, you know, you really, really don't have to have sex with people you don't want to have sex, you know, and but somewhere along the line you do, you know, and need to have sex that is not sleep someone don't want to. So what he feels is, is that a lot of politics has been reduced to an incomprehensible and very ugly prose by academics who are rightfully not read by anyone except each other. And a very unhappy life ensues of endless seminars on unreadable texts. That's the life. <laughs> Would you want to say, you, you've, you've managed to escape and I vocationally am, am committed no, to I mean, you can't escape it because it keeps on coming back at you in you know, in all various ways. So, um, that, but then there's also a very seriously technocratic aspect to, you know, how do you organize a health service free at the point of, you know, and it's a very managerial side to it. I mean, I've been dealing a lot at the moment with the war in Ukraine and, you know, meeting arms, you know, weapons and, God, you know, and it's technical, it's technical. But the stuff of politics is about, about real things in in and so the language shouldn't be artificial and exclude people that's the essential thing now i have my views about teaching all of this i think it's much better to do it and learn that's the other thing he says yes he says it's a direct quote from the book it's just come back to me that politics and sex are the two things where experience is a far greater teacher than books (laughs) Right. There you go. That's an absolutely literal quote. And I just thought that was fabulous because do it. Do it. And then there's the point of, that's the whole point with my criticisms of progressives is is that they lose and they don't accept it. Like they never ask themselves what they could do any better, how they can engage with this better. Stupid people, bad people, basket of deplorables, assholes, racists, all along the road without ever looking at the fact that people have done politics differently and won. Right. You know. Yeah. Okay. So the thing is, 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 you know, with which we recognise, I think, community like with the training is, it's much better to get out there. Right. But failure is part of the story. Yeah. And it's the inability of people to. Learn from from defeat. That is the really, he's big on that. So yeah, I'm going to refer him back to the very first episode in this series where I talk about the Athenian Melian dialogue. And it's one of the kind of slang uses of the term Melian that people just refuse to learn from from their mistakes and and keep trying to fit the world or or, or really refuse to deal with the, the actual realities of the world they're thrown into and the need for compromise and attention to, to really what's going on. And instead, they're constantly trying to fit what's actually going on into some abstract theory or kind of highly uh, kind of developed ideological frame of reference. And rather than do politics with 
other people are not like them. They're, they're for, trying to force the whole world to fit this ideological frame of reference and therefore constantly lose and, and aren't, aren't really doing politics at all. He's full of paradox in this. So politics is eternally the same, but always now. I mean, just on that. So where do, where do we learn politics then? Well, that's the problem is that, is that there used to be a whole range of institutions. Uh, the unions were huge in that. Um, for the English labor movement, for example, the churches were huge trainers, um, and not just the Methodists. I mean, where you learn to speak in public through the sermon, where you learn to organize meetings through bringing people into the same space, where you learn conversation public, the art of public conversations. Yeah, all of that, all the stuff you learn that that's what it is, you know. Um, so you had the unions and you had the churches. You also had, you know, Self-organized schools was was a was a huge part of that, um, and so there were schools of public education that were alive in interest representation and in and in the life of sustaining faith communities. But as more and more of this got contracted out to either the state or consultants, there is a real problem with the formation of political leaders from within poor communities, in particular. Um, and that's greatly accelerated since, as we know, since he was around. So we, we've obviously been talking about Crick's work generally and, and touched on in defense of politics already quite a, quite a bit. But I want to turn to focus on it more intentionally and intensively. So he's he's writing it against the, a very particular kind of backdrop and, and how he comes to write the essay. Can you just give us a, a bit of a background as to when and, and why um, he writes the essay and what the kind of what the context is for the producers his, his felt need to kind of write write this essay. The, the context is that a very very strong rooted labour movement in working class was shifting to, and he was at the LSE, and the LSE was founded by a group in England called the Fabians, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, and they are very much what he would call the bad guys. Um, they wanted a technocratic, scientific administration of society. To give you some idea about the Fabians, they were huge public advocates of euthanasia, right? Yeah. right? Yeah. Eugenics was was their absolute, like, weeding out the bad genes. What was going on was that you could call the Fabianization of labour. It became all about policy, and right. it became all about the delivery of big policy, you know, mass building of universities, huge hospitals, you know, very hostile to the local, very hostile to politics. And so this is a cry for the kind of genius of pre-war labour, in a way. I I should just, um, the first edition was actually written in 1962. So perfect. So um, that's two years before the election of a new Labour government under Howard Wilson, which was committed to the white hot heat of the technical revolution and he's just there he's just there so it's half elegy half prophecy he sees a world dying a world of real politics where ordinary people played a very significant role in the conservative party too in the formation of the politics of the country to suddenly know we're experts Right. And we know what to do. So you've, I mean, you've kind of in some ways summarized already, but can you just 
give us a, a kind of really pithy sense of what he means by a political form of rule, because that's really central to the kind of argument he's making. Okay, so let's have a look at that. So the first is political rule is a recognition of pluralism, that there are different interests. Those interests have to be reconciled without being crushed. You can't kill someone, coerce them or dominate them or cause them to flee if you're going to do politics. Politics is is kind of really the alternative. So, Politics is an alternative to violence, right? So sometimes you can sort things out, as we see at the moment in Russia and Ukraine, can be sorted out that way. Or you do politics, and that involves a bounded spatial realm governed by common institutions and a common law. So those are the fundamental definitions that he works with. And ultimately, it's an act somewhere between persuasion and seduction. That's the art of politics, is seducing people into giving up things that they hold very dear in order to achieve things that they also hold very dear. There is the possibility of of love between strangers, he puts it at one point, that's politics. Um, the rest is just coercion, the public sector management, really. And that he doesn't consider, he considers that bad politics. He knows that it's politics, but it's bad politics. So I just, I want to pick up on this this notion of freedom, because at one point he um, says that where there is politics, there is freedom. That's as a quote from In Defense of Politics. And it seems to go very contrary to a lot of contemporary understandings of, of freedom, where um, either freedom's about the kind of pursuit of private interest rather than the kind of pursuit of public goods. Um, we've got that libertarian idea working around a contemporary moment where it's kind of don't tread on me, don't don't impose anything on freedom is about not being imposed on or uh, any sense of constraint on my actions or just a very kind of old school liberal idea of, of um, uh, freedom from constraint. So here's, Crick's got somewhat of a different sense of freedom in this link to politics. Can you just unpack a bit what's going on for him in this inherent or intrinsic link between um, the kind of doing of politics and the ability to be a, a free person? So here we have to go a bit academic and start talking about certain levels. So the first freedom in in politics is the ability to act. <laughs> Right, like the actual ability to act and to do. Um, and so there, that's where the sovereignty, so to be a free nation, you must be able to act through public deliberation and voting um, according to where that deliberation led. So the first thing is it's an anti-colonial thing, is that in order to do politics, you must be a free nation. So that's why people like me doubt that France and Germany are free nations at the moment. You know, that the EU is a force against their sovereignty, that they have to obey a whole set of undemocratic treaty laws that bind them into it. And you can see it all over Europe now. Italy is the latest example. People are just exploding because you can't do anything about unemployment because it's a competition law. And you can't do anything about failing industries 
because that violates certain clauses of EU law. And you can see in other ways that Poland cannot pass its legislation that it wishes on abortion because it contravenes the European human rights law. So you're not a free... Of freedom, so there's th- that politics is freedom, it's the ability to act, right? And you determine publicly right. and, and democratically, yeah. and 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 so it's all very paradoxical. So, freedom is not getting your own way, right. you know, would be one of the ways he puts it, you know. But really, what's going on here is, is that it's supposed to the concept of this individual freedom. He really likes liberty. You know, he really likes you've got to have freedom of association. They're not rights, uh, yeah. they're liberties. Um, that is much more traditional conception. So freedom of association, freedom of religion, freedom of speech. You know, these are the fundamental, uh, mm-hmm. fundamental, um, liberties of which he's speaking. And then really what he's talking about is that free people, combining together to act Mm. this must be done without coercion that's the analogy with sex it's so much better if you're together but you've got to want to be together right so it's an assertion um in that way of of a freedom and within that the liberties protect the individual but if as we know, if an individual wishes to cause harm to others, they get locked up. You know, that's part of the political okay. conversation. So he makes this he makes this point and, and quotes um, Aristotle as, as saying, "Those who try to exist outside of political relations consider themselves either beasts or gods." And I, I remember he used exactly this point very well um, once in, in a speech in Parliament to describe the media magnate Rupert Murdoch. So just kind of using Murdoch as an example, what, what does Crick mean by this? Why, why are we either beastly or claiming a kind of false divinity if we're outside of political communities or, or refusing to acknowledge our dependence on and, and obligations to the political communities that, that we're part of? Because you're acting without constraint. So this is the paradox of liberty. In order to be free, you must accept other people are free. And in order to accept that, you accept constraints on your freedom. And someone like Murdoch, I was saying, either a beast or a god, I actually added probably both. To be inside a political community, you accept the constraints of other people who are genuinely different to you, being of equal value to you. So you accept constraints on your freedom. So liberty is a constraint on freedom. And, And Virtually all political traditions coalesce around this, the, about um, the social nature of liberty um, in politics. So I guess it, it's the paradox of freedom and constraint. To be free, you have to recognise that other people are also free, and if you're enmeshed in obligations to their freedom and their, their obligations to you. Categorical imperative can is another way, and there's many... There are many other ways of conceptualizing the same thing. But when you're outside of those constraints, you're either a beast, just doing what you wish. A bull in a china shop is probably the analogy that he would use. Um, Or you're a god, you're outside of those relationships. And neither of those things are, are political. Right. So my point about Murdoch is 
is that here's someone who intervenes in other societies through the scale of his wealth and the range of his media operation in his own interest. Right. Never in the interests of others. So he acts like a beast and a god. Right. You know, and it's our political duty to oppose that. Yeah, that's. I think it's a really great example of, of that dynamic in play. So um, just turning on to one, one of the kind of key points that Crick makes is that politics begins with listening uh, and kind of listening is vital for kind of meaningful politics. Can you just unpack a bit like why listening is so important to politics? Because listening is the way that you understand a stranger. So straightforward. Yeah. So unless you actively listen, listen so hard that it hurts, you can never build a coalition with that person. So you can't pursue your interests because you don't have support. I mean, this is goes back to what we were talking about, about liberalism. They want to gain power without gaining support. Right. That's fundamentally what they want. They want to short-circuit the democratic process, usually through legal instruments. Usually it's legal, followed by bureaucratic, followed by administrative, which usually ends up with saying, you can't say that. The paradox of liberalism is its most powerful authoritarian ideology at the moment. It limits speech. It limits action. It constrains very strongly um, what you can do. So that's that's that, that's the beauty of the book, really, is it lingers on this parallel between politics and sex of consent freely given in order to actually produce, <laughs> reproduce the society. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I find it very interesting. Great kind of understands, I mean, he, he uses the term civilizing activity. I, I would say uh, it's a humanizing activity. So for him, it's politics is an inherently kind of humanizing process. And I think he pushes it quite far with the, he says that also humans have the ability to not choose, but but to accept or not accept who their sexual partner is and be capable of building love right. within that. Same with politics, that you associate with who you wish to associate, freely given, to build together and reproduce together the things that you care about in society. I would say that's where he is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just something, I just want to even help me with something I've never really quite understood is why Crick sees sovereignty as prior to politics. So it's contrast quite strongly here with Hannah Arendt, who thinks that politics precedes law and government. Crick seems to think what he calls uh, some form of settled order comes first, and then that creates the condition for politics. So so really kind of some kind of political order or, or sovereign rule precedes any form of actual politics. And it, this just seems to be both wrong in, in fact and wrong in theory. Do you, uh, do you have a comment on this? Um, I've only got a very brief comment, which, which is that He's interested in politics as it is and dwelling on the origins of the British state, which was formed a very, very long time ago. Um, Because it's not just 1066 and the Norman invasion, but there was certainly a policy before that. So you could, you could really go back to the 400s, how that was formed and what the nature of that is. What we do is we have a state. And so that's one aspect of things. And we have a market. That's another aspect of things. So how do you do politics here? Oh, I see. So 
politics is begins from where we discover where we are we're we're thrown into the midst of a history we didn't create and, and don't get to kind of determine when when we begin the journey as, as it were we're, we're always starting in, in the middle of of something else or some some form of politics that was already there and we don't kind of either rules is veil of ignorance or some kind of you know going back and starting again some year zero that's not that's not how we get to do politics in reality so Kind of in, in the essay, after he defines what he means by a political form of rule, he then goes on to defend it against five things, which are ideology, democracy, nationalism, techno- technology, and what he calls his false friends. So we obviously, we, I, I want to go through all of these individually, but can you kind of summarize what some of his core concerns are in the essay? And why does he, you know, why does he need to defend politics against these things? Well, he's, he's, he's- Constantly on the lookout for for the bad guys, for people who are trying to stop ordinary people getting involved. So if you look through that list, it, on the whole, it's full of people who are disempowering people from saying, but I don't think that's right. And getting involved, no, you don't know enough. You're the wrong sort of person. Right. Leave this to me. Yeah. No, the people have decided. You know, these all of those can be summarised as various forms of, of bad guys, and and he was very concerned in sixty one, sixty two, Cuban Missile. Quite, that he was very concerned that this whole concept of national security was going to impede liberty. Right. To talk about the prevailing matters uh, of the time, and then the democracy is more like the formation of political parties that disallow debate once the party has made its decision. You know that sort of yeah. So I mean, I I see all of these as kind of refusals to negotiate a common life by substituting politics for, for non-political ways of ordering and, and organising life together. They're, they're all ways that refuse the need for compromise, refuse to listen, refuse to conciliate different interests and, and rather see diversity as an inevitable and welcome feature of political life. They pathologise and try to suppress difference. They're completely that. So I'm just going to sketch who he identifies um, as the kind of false friends of, of politics and invite you to reflect on them. And I, I'm going to take a bit of time to do this as, as I want you to kind of lay out a bit for us, like where we see these false friends at work today. And so really the first false friend for Crick is what he calls the non-political conservative who, who thinks they stand above the dirty, uh, dirty business of, of politics and the, the primary political objective of the non-political conservative is to defend the interests of property, um, and which they view as, as somehow kind of God-given or, or part of the natural order, rather than itself a political interest that must be negotiated and conciliated with other interests, such as those of workers. Um, and so they, the kind of the, the non-political conservative really only takes property as, as the only kind of thing that matters politically, um, needs to be taken into consideration in, in politics and refuses to see it as, as having to be negotiated and navigated with, with any other kinds of interests. So that's that's the first false friend for Crick. Uh, the second false friend of if politics in his view is what he calls the apolitical liberal or progressive who's kind of so self-righteous or prudish that they kind of won't engage in the kinds of compromise and negotiation that that politics demands. And as Crick kind of puts it rather nicely, he says they they want the fruit of politics, 
things like representative government, public education, the rule of law, et cetera, without the tree of politics, i.e. the kind of messy business of political negotiation, ongoing debate, argument, compromise. And, and in Crick's view, they, I think it's very salient to things like the Brexit debate. They refuse to see how the fruit of politics, let's say being part of the EU, are themselves always then subject to further politics. They're not fixed. Everything's up, always up for further political negotiation. And they have this weird view that somehow enlightened public opinion is the only truly political opinion that should be considered. Anyone's view that isn't kind of, (laughs) but it's slightly sarcastically in the kind of Groniad view doesn't really count. They're just a basket of deplorables or, or something. So there's not, again, there's no real engagement with a variety of political views and the realities of the, of the different political positions and interests that, that are out there. And you might, you might say kind of variation on the apolitical liberal is, is the libertarian view. And he has this great phrase that they, they want to build private splendor on public squalor. And so the libertarian as a version of the apolitical liberal kind of only defends private interests and denies there's any sense of there being common goods or public services on which the flourishing of, of everyone depends and that kind of shared life which you build up through politics. And then the last false friend for Crick's for Crick is what he calls the anti-political socialist. And the anti-political socialist is impatient with the pace of politics and in a kind of revolutionary zeal, wants to change everything all at once through large-scale projects of social engineering. Social engineering, and you, you kind of mentioned the, the, the Fabians before, and they're a great kind of classic example of this view. And in reality to this, though, the 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 anti-political socialist doesn't engage in politics either. They're, they're engaged in a kind of visionary, highly theoretical thinking, shouting down those who don't share this thinking. And, and actual politics, the business of politics, and it's, again, it's messy negotiations, is replaced by a kind of moralized and metaphysical battle. Uh, and, and for Crick, such people, he sees them as kind of latter-day Puritans denouncing and hectoring rather than building coalitions and finding practical solutions to, to real-world problems. And he has a great line, I want to quote, which is, they, they wish to build people's palaces rather than real homes for actual people. I guess in, in organising terms, they're a version of the Melians preferring to die for, for principles uh, rather than win compromises that that benefit many. So you've you, had it in a recent kind of Corbyn kind of frame of reference. Better, better for the Labour Party to lose the election and and die on its principles than win an election uh, through having to kind of compromise those those principles. And for Crick, the anti political socialists really replace political thinking with ideological thinking, or, or often they're conflating politics and, and morality. So can you just say a little bit about where we see these false friends today, the the the, the anti-political socialists, the apolitical, liberal or progressive, uh, and the kind of non-political conservative? Um, so the first one, the supposedly non-political conservative upholder of the status quo. Um, you know, they're the beasts and the gods, right? We've, we've been through that. They think they're outside of it, but they do have a political party. It's called the Conservative Party, and many of them tacitly or very actively support that yeah. because their interests are, th- are threatened. Um, 
And it's also the case that he makes that I would say is, they say they're not political, but really. Um, then the whole the whole progressive thing is, you know, I define as as people who want a certain end and think that if they can repeat themselves again and again and again, that other people will agree with them. A complete inability to do politics, but they do power. Yeah. So they like to capture institutions. They... Most of them are lawyers anyway, so they use the law as an instrument. Um, it's an anti-democratic instrument. Rule by law rather than the rule of law. Rule by lawyers. What their dream is is that lawyers are in charge of all things, um, ultimately. Um, and so you completely can see what he's saying there. The libertarian, again, is very close to the beast or the god you know, you can accumulate as much money as you want with absolutely no responsibility to anybody else. It's the... Well, they've got a lot of experience of this anti-political socialist sort of person. That's that's the mainstay. Which, and they're very close to the progressive yeah. person. But they don't like... They like talking at people. They don't like talking to people and they don't like listening to what they say. And usually they walk out as soon as... You know, people who can't and won't listen, won't conciliate, can't conciliate, polarise consistently without building up a coalition that can win. Yeah. And so that's the interregnum that you all live in right now. Is yeah. You've got to ask yourself, are you prepared to do the work of listening required for political victory? Yeah. And that listening is transformative. You don't just listen, you learn. Yeah. Is and it, listen, is it, listen to how people are treated in call centres and listen to how people are treated in chicken factories. Just listen. Kind of the parallel with Brexit struck me because of the point that Crick makes, um, particularly in relation to progressives and, and the anti-political socialists, uh, that they, they really don't, they always want the kind of the, the, the fruit of politics, as he says, with, without the tree of politics. They kind of refuse to take seriously how things are always subject to political negotiation change and, and kind of the radical contingency of that. You, you you think you might have the best argument and therefore people should just kind of accept it or you you somehow, uh, you fix the law, you win and you fix the law. Uh, and, and the idea that the law might be changed or our views might change and go one way or the other over time um, is kind of an anathema to them and, and um, kind of, really sh things shouldn't change once if you've kind of won the political argument, but rather in Crick's view, they're always subject to change and politics is always before us. And we're always having to be engaged in an ongoing political work. Uh, even when one day we might want the law or have a great argument or, or, or whatever it is. So I, I just kind of want to draw to a close and kind of think about the book in, in relation to organizing specifically and kind of he's highly critical of racism and nationalism and, and um, but in many ways the, the book has quite a, a kind of limited historical range of reference and some of the language used can feel a bit jarring today and, and in many ways what he's arguing is quite inside baseball to, to British politics and so needs a bit of kind of context to understand. But despite all that, it's been taken up by organisers around the world and, and particularly in the States. And I just I just wonder why you think 
organisers have found this essay in defence of politics so helpful? Because he's talking about the fundamentals of politics and the work of organisers. How do you give power to poor people? Well, you do it through building relationships and building democracy and keeping this public sphere alive and open. Um, and, And he's blissfully hostile to all those forms to say, no, 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 no. First of all, you've got to get a master's degree, then you get a PhD, then you go and intern at a politician's office being paid no money, and then you're the weird recipient of enormous grants from Amazon and da, 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 in order to do what you've got to do, fuck's sake. Um, <laughs> community organising is about building the power of local people It's about politics, about power, about agonism, about reconciliation, all those things that he talks about. And so for organisers, I would say that their life is in defence of politics. And so really, it's it's a manifesto for that. So, So lastly, what? lessons do we still need to learn from Crick today? What do you, what do you think is the kind of most important takeaways we should draw, draw from his work? I would say four. Um, first of all, the paradox of politics. The old is the new, faith will redeem citizenship, all of those paradoxes um, that he talks about. Right. Um, politics is not a rational exercise. It's a relational exercise. And there's the demons and the angels and all those things are in place. So the first is the real importance of a paradox, I think. Uh, the second is not to be bullied by academics and experts when you're doing politics. Just don't be. The paradox is, is that far from being a hostile force, our faith and particularly Christianity have been a hugely powerful force in shaping freedom and democracy. So their strength is our strength. Right. The power of faith communities um is 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 very important and um speak plainly right you know, <laughs> don't don't get don't go oh, into God. planet zog when you're talking to you know words not to mention accessibility inclusivity diver you know so do the right thing i think it's a bit better because to say I had my tooth out today, so I'm a bit slow. Fresh from the dentist, Maurice. Thank you so much for doing the Listen Organise Out podcast. Great to have you. And you do. Lovely to have you back. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Listen Organise Act podcast, in which I explored Bernard Crick's understanding of politics and why it's a helpful way to frame the work of organising. The podcast is sponsored by the Keenan Institute for Ethics at Duke University. And as with other episodes, you can download readings directly relevant to the episode from the website, www.ormancentre.com backslash listen dash organise dash act dash podcast. Do follow me on Twitter at West London Man for more material relevant to the podcast. For now, Let me say goodbye, and I hope you join me for the last two episodes in this series where I'll focus on the relationship between the Bible and organising. (laughs) 